I'm just an individual, living a miracle, standing divisible, connected to God and my physical essence of my spiritual presence is visible, totally leaving you unaware of my mental subliminal, used to be a criminal, living so minimal, with things that changed in my life is going through different intervals, finding that balance is significantly difficult, timing is everything, so my timing is critical, rhyming is literal, the unforgettable, it's why I stand before you impeccably so presentable, I give respect to you, know that I am respectable, I've always wanted acceptance, is that acceptable? I give the rival expected to be exceptional, and I'm a grown man, handle no business like a professional, I am incredible, the unconventional, and you stopping me from chasing my dreams is unprovoked. Welcome to NC Raw. My name is Steve Steen. Sitting in with the NC Raw crew, my homie, the recovery lion, Caleb McCoy. What's up? What's up? How's everybody doing? What's going on, brother? How you doing? I'm blessed, man. I'm blessed. Yeah. It's good to see you. It's been a while. Yeah, it has. Uh, we have a special guest tonight. I was going to throw it over to you to kind of give him a personal introduction like we did last time with Caitlin. So we're here with the uh, amazing Casey Cooper, the Cherokee Indian Hospital CEO of 15 years. Um, it, it's a beautiful thing, actually, because it's come full circle. I know just a, a couple a couple years ago, or not a little over a year ago, actually, um, Casey was uh, on the phone with my mom about getting a, an IVC done on me, uh, signed off on me, so to get me into uh, treatment, I was running um it's what i'll you know it's what i've always been good at still doing it now but <laughs> <laughs> running, running in the right direction running in the right direction running for recovery so um yeah it's come full circle my recovery has given me that welcome casey well thank you it's a pleasure to be here uh anything i can do to uh support the recovery community i'm you know i, I view it as a blessing to get the opportunity there's a tremendous amount of hope and and um, i'm glad to be a part of a conversation where we talk about hope Awesome. Well, we're very grateful to have you, and we know you're a very busy man taking the time out on a late Monday night to sit down with us and talk about recovery and talk about solutions. Um, so, yeah, just kind of like wanted to kind of sit down and get a little conversation started, really just like catch up with you guys, Caleb, Caitlin, kind of like see what you've been up to since we last spoke. What What's... What's new in your life, man? I, I know you guys did a run last weekend. Had a little. Did we do it? Oh yeah, yeah. We done a five k. Sorry, it's uh. It was we done like, a five k. It was like two days ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we went to Lake Junaluska, done a five k. Um, Tell them how fast I did mine. <laughs> <laughs> what the real well, time or? I saw you guys setting goals on Facebook, <laughs> so I just want to know did who achieved their their goal i see somebody raising their hand i didn't i didn't i I missed uh my i was a minute and something over i was i was shooting for 20 minute 20 minute 5k and i um i think i ran mine at 21 40 or something like that okay so i was a little disappointed in that but i know it's got to you know put in some more some more work and i'll get there uh but the the cool thing about it was is my my nieces and nephews went along with us um the gucci gang the gucci gang hashtag the whole crew <laughs> yeah the whole crew we actually got a, a award for most participants it's beautiful um man. i think we had nine people in our group run so that's a beautiful thing casey do you have any experience uh running i saw some 
bicycles on your Facebook page? You're a cyclist? <laughs> well, I, I was a cyclist for a while. <clears throat> when I, I finished graduate school in 2008 and started training for um, the Remember the Removal Ride in 2011. Okay. And um, so it was... Uh, you know, it was a pretty monumental thing in my life. It's something I really enjoyed doing. It's uh, uh, at some point maybe you guys should have a whole conversation about the RTR ride. It's a it's a pretty big deal where the you have a group of um, riders from the Eastern Band as well as the Cherokee Nation, and they ride the 950 mile route, uh, the northern route of the Trail of Tears, to, okay. to commemorate it. But anyway, it was uh, it was a pretty awesome thing, and. Um, uh, I finished uh, that in probably the best shape I'd been in in 10, 10 or 15 years. And then over the next 24 months, I watched my belt just completely slip out of my hands every morning when I would <laughs> yeah. get dressed. It was like it was this fleeting thing that I had no control over, you know, yeah. one notch, then the next, then the next. And then I had to buy a new belt. And, you know, so next thing you know, I'm, I'm not riding or doing anything. But uh, I need to get out there. Um, you know, it's inspirational to see all these young folks that are so committed and living really healthy lives now. Absolutely. Um, now, that RTR ride, that's the one that influenced you to do your upcoming run, run yeah. to Oklahoma? Yeah. Um, obviously, uh, <laughs> and now we got a RTR alum, so I'm not going to sit here and uh, I'll commend what y'all done. <laughs> I think it's awesome. Um but with that being said, I, I wanted to get close to the experience that our people, um, you know, went through when they went out on the Trail of Tears. And, and so that's why I'm uh, on May 7th, I'm going to be running from Godua to Oklahoma, and I'll be taking the binge route. And it's going to cover 1,411 miles, and I'm planning on doing it in 56 days. Hopefully so hopefully quicker than that. Um, I know that I'm going to set the last 111 miles aside, and I'm going to try to knock that out in a 24-hour clip. Okay. So yeah, May seventh. I'm sleeping said? on the ground, and I was just telling Caitlin, I said, "Well, why, where am I going to take a bath? Like, <laughs> I don't even know where I'm going to bathe at, but uh, we'll figure it out on the way." Oh, those are just details. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get bogged down in the details. Just right. go for it. Two Let's or three years ago, the details did not matter. So <laughs> why should they matter today? Huh? Right. That's it. Now, you know, it's, uh, when we sit around and wait on things to get just right, you know, we never get anything done. So. You know, get get a plan and just dive into it and figure out the rest later on as you go. The other part of that story is he can't ride a bike. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. We've that's we've, why he's running. We've recorded. <laughs> we have recorded four episodes, and he has left that part out every time that I've brought this. Well, up. actually, I'll be doing an Ironman this coming Sunday in Florida. Okay. Um, Whereabouts in Florida? Uh, Lake Eva. Or Haines City, Haines City, City, Florida. It's, it's okay. about an Central hour. Florida. Something. It's about yeah. Okay. It's a, it's a little bit south of Orlando. Well, and that's then, what I was going to ask you. Is like what what are you doing leading up to that May seventh departure? Because that's just around the corner. You're talking about almost a month away. Don't remind me. Uh, what do you mean? What am I doing? What What do you mean? What are you doing to prepare? Like, what's your routine like? What do you got? What do you have planned? I, I don't. I try not to keep a, a set routine. I, I believe routines can be a rut in your life. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it's good to mix things up. I know today I went on. I, I rode twenty plus miles and ran a couple miles. Um, I rode my bike. <laughs> training wheels. <laughs> training wheels. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm just uh, pounding out miles, getting used to you know it's it's going to be a barbaric thing, and I don't think there's any kind of training you can do besides pound out miles. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more about the routines. Uh, when I first got into recovery, like the first two years, I had like a set routine. 
You know, I woke up every morning and I knocked out my 30 minutes of meditating. And throughout the day, I just had a specific routine. And as of late, just within like the last month, uh, I've kind of like fallen off of that routine a little bit. And it, it kind of like rattled me. And I like kind of like had to like check myself and look in the mirror and like really like reassess how to make my that same routine or make those same um, those same needs in my life fit into my busy schedule. So I, I definitely could agree with you on that. So Casey, tell me about um, what that experience was like, Caleb, how in his introduction, working with his mom and kind of like you two's background. Could you kind of share with our listeners kind of maybe where that started, you know? And sure. Um, yeah, uh, hopefully. I mean, Caleb kind of opened the door here, so I'm, I'm sure he don't mind me saying I mean, typically as a hospital CEO, I wouldn't talk about somebody else's story, right? But, but um, I, I'm actually, uh, I, I was kind of reassured to hear you say that you remember that event. Caleb, I, to be honest with you, I wasn't sure that you'd remember it. Um, but here was, here's my recollection. Um, his mom was really worried about him. And, uh, um, and a lot of times, you're, you know, parents and loved ones, when we're, we have some, a loved one that's struggling, um, with addiction, we get to a point where there's nothing we can do, right? And so we just start reaching out anywhere out of desperation. What can we do? And his mama called me. You were the CEO at the hospital yeah, at that time? Yeah. So his mama called me and um, she was asking me questions, you know, are there any options? Is there anything that we can do? And, and obviously, you know, one of the things that people want to talk about is an involuntary commitment, mm-hmm. you know, because it, when, when it's your loved one, you really do feel like that they are a, a threat to themselves, even if they're not a threat to someone else. The challenge is with addiction, it's really hard to convince the court system, in this case a magistrate, mm-hmm. that a, a person needs to have their civil rights taken away from them, you know, um, as a result of addiction. And a lot of times you just can't do it. And, and if folks are not willing to volunteer themselves into treatment, they can't. And so <clears throat> I talked to his mom, and unfortunately I didn't have a lot of good news for her, you know. It was just I didn't have anything that I could say to her that was going to fix this problem. And she said, well, will you call him? And I said, absolutely. What was that conversation like? So I called him up, and um, I said, "Um, your mama called me, and um, she's really worried about you. And um, she wanted to talk about uh, involuntary commitment, and I explained to her that it probably wouldn't happen. It's not possible, um, and that the court system probably will not issue the, uh, the custody order. But if you're willing to come in, we're here. If you want to come in, we'll take care of you. Uh, we're here when you're ready. If you're not ready today, we're here when you get ready. And um, the last thing I said, um, according to my memory, and if I get this wrong, Caleb, you put me back on track, but the last thing that I had to offer was to say, look, if nothing else, just know that your mama loves you and that she was worried about you, and she called me. And I remember his response being, I don't have anything else to say. And he just got really quiet, and then after a long pause, he thanked me and said when he was ready, he'd give us a call. What was that? That's my recollection of it. What do you recall from that conversation? You didn't know that this conversation was going there, did you? Absolutely not. (laughs) My stomach's in knots right now because... Just knowing the uh, the hurt and the heartache, heartbreak I was causing my mom and the rest of my family, because so many times, you know, when when um, we're in our substance use, 
obviously it's a selfish disease and we, we don't think about those things and how it affects the rest of our family and uh you know the reason my stomach's in knots is because just knowing how much my mom how close we are now and how much she loves me and she was out of you know things to i mean she didn't know where to turn and i know she showed me the papers actually when i got out of jail of how I, they was going to take my rights from me and she was going to you know have me committed to a mental hospital mental institution and by the grace of God here I see it but um thank you Casey I appreciate that and that's how and that's what I'll try to share with everybody that's how we um it's just plant no seeds and you know God's got to come behind us and water them and and I have faith that um there's no such thing as a hopeless case and uh I just appreciate everything that you do for the community and the love and compassion that you show everybody well, let me ask you this, Casey. I mean, it's very clear that Cherokee is a very tight-knit community. And you're a very involved person in that community. Um, and so it sounded like you had somewhat of a relationship with Caleb's mom prior to this conversation. She reached out to you maybe on like a personal level. Um, do you... F- does that happen often? And then do you find that somewhat like difficult to like balance out from a personal and a professional standpoint or? So I don't, it, I, I don't personally feel like it's difficult to balance mm-hmm. because <clears throat> the, um, the, the health system that we have in Cherokee is very, very different from traditional health systems. Certainly. And, um, so we have, um, um, we have this concept uh, in the healthcare system. One of our guiding principles is this principle known as Nihi Tate Li. And um, when we say Telegi Gonektohi Nihi Tate Li, what that means is that the Cherokee Hospital, it belongs to you, it's yours. And so the, those, all of those resources, that entire health system, is held in common for the entire community. The community owns it. And when we work there, we believe that we are just stewards of the community's inheritance, right? So, so the hospital, the health system, all the services, they already belong to Caleb. They belong to his mom. They belong to his family. They belong to Caitlin. They belong to everybody who's in that community. And my job is to just be a steward of it. Certainly. Right? And as a steward, my job is to help provide it to the best that I can when and how they need it. And so um, I think that... If you're an owner, right, mm-hmm. so Caleb and Caitlin, they, they're owners. They're customer mm-hmm. owners of that health system. So they should absolutely be able to call the CEO yeah. when they have a concern about that service. And so I think it's very different, and so I don't wh- have a problem Whereas, with it like, off-reservation, those types of barriers could prevent these types of discussions. It's almost the exact opposite, where it kind of opens that door. right. I, I think it is the exact opposite. And the other, the other reason that we are so committed to being responsive in this way is because um, for hundreds of years, Native people have not had voice. Mm-hmm. They, they, they haven't had voice. And now that the tribe owns its own health system, we want to ensure that our customer owners know that they have voice. Yeah. And a lot of times having voice means you have to call directly into the CEO. Right. And so I don't begrudge that. I don't begrudge that at all because they're exercising their voice in a healthy way, um, which is, I think, monumental for a community that suffered, you know, hundreds of years of, of oppression 
um, mm-hmm. and and horrible uh, federal policy. Mm-hmm. So you almost expect it and welcome that. Yeah, there's no question about it. I mean, there are, there are so many patients that have my personal cell phone number. Um, That's beautiful. I took calls over the weekend um, to help advocate for patients and and to respond to things. Cool. But so let's I, talk. Let's talk yeah. a little bit about that role and like. I really want to kind of take it back and kind of find out how you got into this position. Like, what was your what was your path? So, what was my path to the yeah, CEO like, position? Yeah, I mean, obviously you were you're a native of Cherokee. Yep, yeah, born and raised there. Um, yeah. So my path is kind of interesting and and different. And honestly, it is a path of um. um this recurring event, this recurring cycle of being in a situation where we had an absence of leadership, somebody needed to make a decision and step up and do it. Um, you know, I was naive enough or, or, or I, I love the community enough that I was willing to just kind of, um, you know, stick my neck out and offer a direction when one didn't exist. And so that started from, you know, from the time I was a nurse on the inpatient unit, I moved into public health nursing and then moved into the management role there because mm-hmm. we were absent a manager. And then um, during the Joyce Dugan administration for the tribe, um, there was a vacancy at the health director level. It was called the, at that time, it was called the executive director of the health and medical division, which is essentially like the secretary of health for a, a tribal government. And, um, you know, there were people that uh, there was a vacancy. Uh, uh, somebody needed to step up, and there were people asked me to do it, and, and people believed in me. And so I said, sure, you know, it's, let's just do it. And so then that kind of led to the whole self-governance mm-hmm. um, kind of cycle, which was another big cycle where we took over sure. the health system. And I think we'll, we'll get there in just a minute. But oh. uh, let's take it back to, Sorry. like, I want to hear about, like, what life was like as a nurse. Oh. Like what what <laughs> What attracted you to just, like, the helping field? Why did you – yeah. Want to pursue that? Yeah. Um, okay. So, okay, um, here you go. Just as straight as I can be. Um, I went into nursing. It started out for, um, like, it, there were different reasons, you know, and different, like, milestones, right, or sentinel events in my life that kind of led me into nursing. The first one happened when I was a freshman at Smoky Mountain High School. Okay. Intro to Spanish was full. And you had to have, um, I had to have intro to Spanish to be college prep. And because Spanish was full, they stuck me in intro to health occupations. And health occupations that year had a brand new teacher, and her name was Frances Hess. And she's a beautiful woman who is just incredibly amazing and has been a mama to so many wonderful people in the healthcare system in Western North Carolina. And she believed in me, and she refused to let me um, be an underachiever. And I, uh, of course, fell in love with her just like a second mom. And uh, it became real important to me to not disappoint her. So I took HO1, and then eventually I took HO2. Uh, it's either Allied Health Science 2 or Med Science 2 now. So my senior year, uh, I'm in HO, and I still don't know what I'm going to do, but I heard that there was a national shortage for nursing, and so there's a pretty good chance I could get a job if I could get a nursing degree. So I wasn't pursuing a career. I was running from poverty, mm-hmm. you know, like a lot of people do. I mean, it, you know, pursuing, like, happiness and some kind of gratifying career was a luxury that I wasn't even focused on. It was just, you know, how can I get a good-paying job and, you know, and escape poverty? My senior year, 
um, we were doing our clinical rotation uh, at Harris Regional Hospital, and I was living with uh, a dear friend at that time uh, just across the road here, uh, my, my really good friend, Travis Clark. I was living with him at the time, and uh, he was in health occupations, and his great-grandfather was a patient on the third floor. And uh, so one day during clinical, we went upstairs, and uh, we, we had finished up where we were supposed to be. I was probably supposed to be in housekeeping that day, and Travis was supposed, probably supposed to be in, you know, maintenance or something. I don't know, while we were rotating around the hospital. And he said, let's go see my grandpa. So we did. And we got into his room, and there laid his precious little grandpa. And he was in his late 80s, early 90s at the time, and he was not responsive. And as we stood there looking at his grandpa, we looked around and we realized that the, um, the linen to change his bed was there. And I said, Trav, you know, we've learned <laughs> how to do this. We took this in class. Let's make his bed. Yeah. And so Trav said, well, okay, you know. And I said, wait, before we make his bed, he hadn't had a bath. So let's give him a bath. Totally we, ran we with it. We did it in Miss yeah. Hess's class. Where we checked it off. You know, we had our name on the wall with a check beside it that said that we demonstrated this skill. So we bathed him just like Miss Hess taught us. We folded the washcloth around our hand, and we made a mitt, and we exposed one extremity at a time, and we gave him the best bath ever. And then we realized he hadn't been shaved. It's a trap. There's a razor. <laughs> Let's shave him. <laughs> so we did. So we bathed him, we shaved him, we combed his hair, we fluffed his pillow, made his bed, propped him up, and he was beautiful. Spotted. He was beautiful, and he was glowing. And there was just something that something inside me that moved, and I was like, oh, my God. I don't know what this is, but it feels great. And then all of a sudden, the door opened, and his family came in, Travis's grandfather and Travis's aunts and uncles. And when they came in... And they saw his great-grandfather laying there, shining and glowing and beautiful, just, you know, just a, an illustration of about 30 or 45 minutes of love that had been bestowed on him. And I saw them weep, and I saw how it, how it touched them just to have somebody love their loved one, you know, and pour themselves in. And I was hooked. Man, I, it, I was hooked. I, I, I said, I, I don't know what this is going to look like. At that time, there weren't a lot of males going into nursing in 89. As a matter of fact, I was the only male in my nursing program uh, for four years at Gardner-Webb. And, um, but I, I knew that there was nothing more intrinsically motivating. There was not a better high in the world than pouring yourself into somebody else and helping them glow. That's and that's beautiful. it. That's how I got there. Yeah. I have a question. You know, in today's society, you know, the kids always want to – they get discouraged from – from going into a field like nursing because that's not the cool thing to do. What would you, what kind of advice would you give to those kids um, that's, that might be listening right now as far as, like you, uh, like you said, you was the only male in nursing at that time? Yeah. So, you know, I think, I think the, the number one advice I would give any young person is I would say pay real, real attention to yourself. Make sure that you really understand what motivates you intrinsically and make sure that you're not motivated by societal pressures. Make sure that you, you don't, you know, sometimes we think that we are gratified by the expectations of society. Sometimes we think it brings us happiness to even excel at something that uh, is a societal norm. And we, we're getting some kind of temporary cotton candy kind of fleeting gratification from that. But I would tell people, listen really close quiet yourself calm yourself and listen and you'll find out what really moves you 
and then fuel that passion. And if that and if it is a and if you're a male and your passion is to go into something that's a predominantly female dominated uh, role, but it brings you intrinsic motivation. Who cares? Stopping what you. difference does it make? Right. Because you're pursuing excellence. Right. You are pouring fuel on your excellence cycle. And that's all that matters. That's beautiful, man. I love hearing that from you, man, because that's kind of like how this NC Raw podcast and brand and show took life uh, over the last year was that um, get into recovery myself. I immediately enrolled in the substance abuse program over at SCC. Mm-hmm. I've been studying there for like a year and a half and because um, it just seemed like the natural thing to do, right? We want to give back and we want to like change the world and, mm-hmm. um, you know, help people heal through our story and all, and all of those things. And it seemed like the natural fit. Um, and, you know, a year and a half into it, I kind of like looked myself in the mirror and I was like, that that's, you know, I don't know, fun and good and all, but is that really what you want to do? Mm-hmm. And, right. I was, and I looked myself in the mirror and I was like, what, what was your dream before addiction? What was your dream before you ever picked up that bottle or picked up that drug? And it was radio. You know, there I wanted to get, I wanted to get in like behind the scenes, not necessarily like as a host of a show, but just get in behind the scenes and the kind of like learn the production side of it. Um, so then I started thinking, I was like, well, how can I, take my recovery skills. How can I take what I've learned at SCC? I'm still in the program. I'm still going to, you know, finish up over there. How can I take what I've learned at SCC? How can I take what I've learned uh, in my personal recovery and then also still pursue my dream? And I reached out to Caleb. I'm like, let's do a show. Let's do a talk show. Let's create something. Let's be creators and innovators. And so that's that's why we're here. So that's just amazing to hear you. Yeah. Hear you say that. Did I see a hand get raised over here by Caitlin? So I just have a quick question because as I'm sitting here listening to you talk about your love for the health field, I thought maybe this would be a good opportunity to ask you what kind of advice can you give to somebody? Because for me, that was my dream. That was my passion to uh, do something in the health field. But since I went down the road that I did, I've kind of uh, been struggling with, you know, the what am I going to do now? Can I go back to being able to do something in the health field, especially with, especially with these um, the labels that get placed upon us, like possibly being a convicted felon or mm. you know struggles like that. You know, what opportunities are there still? Because I'm sure that there are many listeners out there that probably went through the same things, and that could stop them, you know, from from perhaps going on and and pursuing their dreams. So, so what advice would I have for someone? The, um, you know, first of all, I would say, um, don't make assumptions about limitations. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, Caitlin, I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't presume to everything that you would make an assumption about a limitation. I know you'd look into it, you know, but the, um, so the first thing I, I would say is, um, if we don't find a way um, to use our genius, the genius that God gave us, if we don't find a way to use those talents to bring ourselves happiness and to improve the lives of others, then I think that we're kind of missing out on a divine purpose that we have. And with that in mind, I would say, first of all, 
Um, don't make assumptions about the limitations. Uh, explore them. Find out, you know, uh, um, if, for example, let's just say hypothetically you said, uh, I want to go to nursing school. So you reach out to some organizations and you say, look, I, I'm really thinking about this. Um, is, there a, is there an absolute prohibition against hiring somebody uh, who, um, who is in recovery or somebody who has a, a, um, a felony on their record? And, and I, think, I think some organizations would have latitude in that. Um, and, and I think uh, a lot of times it's an individual policy decision. I don't think it's necessarily a prohibition with uh, the licensing agent. But, I, but I, would, I would do that research, and I would find out, right? And then once I knew for sure that those were just perceived barriers and not true barriers, then I'd pour myself into that with the understanding that that's my absolute purpose in life and everything else was waste of my time, and it's a waste of the talents that God gave me. You know, and I would I would pursue it with that kind of passion. Um, the the other thing I will say is um, there are there are life experiences that bring so much more value to a therapeutic relationship than academia. It is so much more powerful, and I really believe um, I really believe that the recovery community can be so much more therapeutic and so much more effective than the professional community can um, because a lot of times you just you have that in um, that emic, uh, understanding that inside that you have that life experience that allows you to have empathy and compassion on a level that the professional system just can't and just doesn't get it you know what I mean and I I am. Um, I'm. I'm sorry to do this. It's like a no, really corny joke, let's do right? it. but yeah, Bring it. I used to. Yeah, you know, I don't know if anybody was a, a West Wing fan back when West Wing oh, was yeah, on, but yeah, yeah. you know, there's this great episode about Josh and Leo, right? And uh, and Leo was in recovery, and um, uh, Josh was struggling, and Leo tells the story about a guy, the guy in the hole. Have you heard the story about the guy in the hole? So the, this guy falls down in a hole, oh, and yeah. he's stuck in the hole, right? And so uh, the doctor walks by. And uh, the doctor walks by the hole, and the guy in the hole says, hey, you know, can you help me out? I'm stuck in this hole. And the doctor says, sure, and writes a prescription and drops it down in the hole, and the guy's still stuck in the hole, right? And so then uh, then a, a priest goes by, and the guy in the hole says, hey, can you help me out? And the priest says, sure, and he, and he offers up a blessing, and he prays for the guy, and, and he walks off, and the guy's still in the hole, right? And then the third guy comes along, and the guy in the hole says, hey, can you help me out? I'm stuck in the hole. And the third guy jumps down in the hole. And the guy in the hole says, what the heck are you doing? Now we're both in the hole. And he says, yeah, but I've been here before. I know how to get out. Right? And that's just something, right? That is something that the recovery community, you've been in the hole. You know how to get out. You know the journey is tough. You know that it's, it's difficult. Uh, and you know that the journey is uncertain. It can go different directions for different people with different ways. But you understand that and you get that. And you can connect in a way where you walk alongside the person in the hole and you can connect with empathy and compassion in a way that motivates people, uh, unlike the professional system can. So that would be my thoughts. Yep, the guy that walked by was a peer support specialist that jumped down in a hole with him. There you go. <laughs> That's right. I love hearing that. I love hearing, like, walk beside somebody, you know, somebody yeah. at your level to hear somebody use that type of language that we, like, you know, push and talk about all the time. It's, it's beautiful, man. I actually just made a Facebook Live video of that, I don't know, about two weeks ago. 
talking about the guy in the hole. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's great minds think alike, right, Casey? That's yeah, man, beautiful. I'm going to have to friend you on Facebook or something <laughs> so that I can get in on all this great information. <laughs> Be careful. <laughs> so let's, let's take a couple steps back. And, um, so you had that experience in the hospital, and it clicked, and you decided you're going to pursue nursing. Went off to school. Went off to nursing school. Yep. You mentioned Gardner Webb earlier. Yep. Okay. And upon graduating, what was the next step? What did you do next? I I tell people that <clears throat> when I graduated from nursing school, it was uh, it was like Mama called, right? And when Mama calls, you go home. To to quote Bear Bryant. Bear Bryant. Yeah. I was reading this right. about you earlier today. <laughs> yeah. All right. And when Mama calls, you go home. Roll and Tide. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I was uh, I just finished nursing school and had passed my license exam and um, was still hanging out down in uh, Cleveland and Rutherford County. And uh, Arnold Wachacha called me. Arnold was the health director at the time, and he said, um, "Hey, I heard that you graduated from nursing school." I said, "I did." He said, "Well, do you have a license?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "Well, come home. I got a job for you." I said, "Okay, what is it?" He said, "It's teaching health occupations." Oh, yeah. Just like Miss Hess. Yeah. And I said, I'm on my way. So I came home and I taught uh, high school for two years. And I and I realized that I was really too young and too immature uh, to be teaching teenagers. And um, I had um, I, I didn't have enough emotional maturity and spiritual maturity to have um, to have kind of the acceptance and the and the compassion for teenagers that I needed to have to to really be healthy for them. Mm-hmm. And I could tell that I was not necessarily influential with them and that I, I was at times even more discouraging. And I knew that that was not healthy for them. So I left uh, uh, teaching. And um, to this day, uh, my favorite thing really is teaching. I, I love it. Um, but uh, anyway, so I left there and um, uh, went to the hospital and started working as a nurse. Uh, worked at Harris Regional for a while. And then went back to Cherokee, uh, where I began just kind of moving through my career at the Cherokee Hospital and ultimately through the tribal health system until I returned, uh, excuse me, until I returned to the hospital as the CEO. So what type of experience and perception did you have as a hospital nurse um, in regards to like addiction and recovery back then at that time? Oh, Yeah. So I'm I'm not proud to tell you that you know early out of nursing school it was it was all about blame and shame. Well, and it was totally you know? different, just yeah, perception yeah. in general, the whole recovery. So oh I mean. yeah, it was it was about blame and shame. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, blame the patient. You know, shame them. Um, you know, just kind of uh, channel all your frustration, um, the frustration that comes from uh, the inability to help somebody and solve their problems, um, and then just channel that into into blaming you know like it was just personal choice and and you know I, I honestly I, I think one of the things that helped me move beyond that was taking care of diabetic patients okay um, so a significant portion of my career <clears throat> excuse me was um, was dealing with this horrible epidemic of diabetes that we have in Cherokee we have um, uh, roughly, we have about 3,000 diabetics in the community, so it's, 
you know, we've estimated and how many our, how many community members do you have? Yeah, so the so, hospital serves. So an active user population is somewhere between twelve and fourteen thousand, depending okay. on how we run that data. <clears throat> so it's a significant chunk. At one time, and I don't know if the prevalence rate's still this high, but at one time, our prevalence rate was about twenty four percent. Wow. Yeah. So it's it's outrageous. Um, now, what's more staggering though is that our depression rates are higher than that. Mm-hmm. And now our substance abuse rates are higher than our depression rates. Wow. But anyway, um, so it was dealing with diabetes. And, and you know, it was just uh, uh, it was a little easier um, to, to get beyond blame and shame with diabetics. Um, you could kind of, um, you know, you, it was easier to have a little bit more empathy and a little bit more compassion for them. But then the more we studied it and the more we learned and, and explored um, and especially with the leadership of this amazing woman named Dr. Ann Bullock, um, as we as we looked into this and we saw this whole connection to um, between stress physiology and the body's stress response, and then the maladaptive coping me- mechanisms to stress, and we saw that whole connection to depression and and substance abuse, and then ultimately chronic uh, diseases like diabetes and hypertension, et cetera. And then it, it was easier to say, wait a minute, you know, who are we kidding? Um, addiction disorders are a disease, uh, and it's rooted in something much deeper mm-hmm. than just individual personal choice. You know, it, it, it's much deeper. We have to get to the roots of this, just like we have to get to the roots of diabetes and hypertension and, and that kind of thing. And so um, I think it was it's a weird journey. Um, At what point in your career did do you kind of have – have this understanding uh so i don't know exactly you know it it wasn't like we just kind of woke up one day Mm -hmm. and you know it was just kind of you know just as long as we're open right as as long as we keep our minds open then our thoughts and our beliefs just kind of continually evolve right and as long as we are willing to accept non non non-affirming data Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Then we can evolve and we can develop uh, new ideas. And that's really, what, that's really what was happening to us with diabetes in the late 90s and the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. At that time in the late 90s, there, were all these, there was this thing called thrifty gene theory. Um, and and the, the entire country was buying into the fact that, you know, this theory that American Indians were, uh, you know, we were extremely efficient like Toyotas, but yet we were eating like school buses. And so we were storing all these extra calories. And, and, and that theory has been completely debunked. Uh-huh. But because we were open to other things, you know, and it, and it was kind of a stretch at that time to say, wait a minute, maybe diabetes is a result of adverse childhood experiences. Maybe it's the result of stress physiology. Uh, you know, and, and being open to that, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think, is what helped us to evolve. And, and, and I think that we live in a community um, which, for the most part, is extremely enlightened about the effects of intergenerational grief and trauma and stress physiology, much more so than other communities, especially non-Native communities. Certainly. So when you began kind of studying the um, disease of addiction and began to like kind of have these insights was that something that you did on your own or was it something that your team yeah no it was the team okay. right it was the team really under the leadership of dr bullock um and other champions um you know and and um <clears throat> when i say uh w- we said earlier that the advice that i would give young people is um really practice and rehearse listening to yourself and listening to your heart and what feels right. And, and, you know, because blame and shame was easy, mm-hmm. but it felt bad. 
You know what I mean? Certainly. And then all of a sudden, when we start having these discussions about about stress and about intergenerational grief and trauma, even though it's messy and we can't fix it, there's not an easy solution. It still felt right. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And sometimes in society, um, we go for things that are that seem overt and obvious because we can solve it and fix it. And and we we have this cognitive dissonance about how it even feels. You know, I mean, everything from from dealing with addiction to the national gun debate to national policy to to federal federal policy uh, regarding American Indians. You know, over the last hundred years, we do these things that we think are just quick fixes and solutions and they're overt and they make sense, even though it doesn't feel right. And so we use terms to dehumanize people and we use phrases and we use innuendos and all these things to numb that inner voice inside of us that's saying it's sitting right. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't feel right. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And so I I think it's, you know, again, it it was a team that did it and it was it was a whole bunch of people that were committed to saying this just doesn't feel right. There's something better. We're missing something. And I think we can relate to that as people in recovery, that feeling. I mean, all those years going on and on and on in our use, we clearly had those feelings that, hey, I know I'm not supposed to be doing this, right? I know I shouldn't treat my girlfriend this way, or I know I shouldn't stay out all night, or whatever it is that we were doing. We knew that we shouldn't do it, um, but we didn't really have any other, know of any other ways to kind of relate to those feelings or right. emotions internally right so you numb them numb them right right yeah. so you know exactly it. what yeah, you said. it's like oh something's not right about this this doesn't feel right and you know i'm supposed to be a man about this you know that's the way we're supposed to do this <laughs> and you know and i'm just going to drink some more i'm going to take another hit or i'm going to do whatever it takes to help sure. me to you know to be that model man that allows me uh to uh be void of of compassion you know or to be void of conviction you know mm-hmm. what i mean I'm going to ask you one question before we kind of take a short break. What does compassion mean to you? I've heard you use that word like two or three times tonight. Mm. Give me Casey Cooper's definition of compassion. So, so I think compassion, I think compassion comes from the spiritual part of us, right? Mm -hmm. It is, it is that part that God gives us that, that separates us. And it's that ability, um, to 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 sense that somebody is in need of your grace or your graciousness or your service and it's the willingness to listen to that voice and give it right it, Absolutely. it, it is um it is the willingness to stop what you're doing and to inconvenience yourself on behalf of somebody else to relieve their suffering i, I think that's a big piece of it i love it i love it casey thanks for sharing your insights and your story when we come back we will discuss a little bit about kind of what you guys do at the hospital currently and kind of what's taken place over the couple last few years as far as um, getting people into recovery. What do you see in the hospital and that sort of thing? NC Raw is looking for, looking to our listeners to submit music for us to play during our show breaks. If you are a person in long-term recovery or a recovery ally making recovery-related music or music that um, is just sharing a positive message, please send it to us via Facebook or through our website's email address. Uh, We're going to play a track from one of my homies out in Asheville, Notes, 
one of our first listener submissions. We've been playing his music the last couple weeks. Um, so it's an amazing dude in recovery doing great things out in Nashville. So this is my buddy Notes, When It's Over. While I'm laying in the casket and my slideshow play My best friend gave a sermon, it was raining that day He always told me to chill hooks and make sure I pray So the service got a serving in my soul, I got a feeling So I floated to the section where the guests started mingling And I overheard it do say, I'm glad he stopped breathing So I stopped right there, cause I wanna know the reason He said, yeah, I knew hooks, him and my son, they were best friends Ride together, die together, that's how it's supposed to be he lived and my son died That's how that story ended And I'm supposed to cry at his funeral I'm not a friend Did someone said you ain't never meet the new hooks After that he turned from that life And he read books Every day he showed up at work And told a different story About his trials and tribulations His pain and God's glory The man who spoke He helped start my career I was shocked, I was surprised I was in tears, he was here And I wanted to tell his father That I tried to save his life But he died so I could live Live that night, it was meant for me. In the end, what the people gon' say while I'm laying in my casket and the slideshow play? It could be truth or a lie. Some smile, some cry, but I just wanna know what they gon' say when I die. In the end, what the people gon' say while I'm laying in the casket and my slideshow play? It could be truth or a lie. Some smile, some cry. But I just want to know what they going to say when I die. So I started looking for my kids, though, once in my life. And I saw them in the casket, dressed in all black. And my little girl asked your mommy, is daddy gone? Mommy say, no, baby, your daddy, he's right here. Every day you go to school, your daddy, he's right there. Every night when you're praying on your knees, he's right there. And I said, that's right, baby, you tell her who I am. Man, you tell her what I did, shit. You tell her about a daddy who banged in the shed. And he leaned in the caddy, then he worked like a pappy so she can live happy. And then I saw my mama, Lord, I saw my mama. And at that very moment, I remembered all that drama, man. That life without a father. Now I'm looking at my daughter, then my daughter look at me like she can really see me. She smiled and I smiled. We got tears on my face. And she looked up and said, Your daddy, it's gonna be okay. In the end, what the people gonna say while I'm laying in the casket in my slideshow? Show play, it could be truth or a lie. Some smile, some cry, but I just want to know what he's gonna say when I die. In the end, tell the truth, what the people gonna say while I'm laying in the casket in my slideshow play. It could be truth or a lie. Some smile, some cry, but I just want to know what they gonna say when I die. What they gonna say when I die. You know what I mean? It could be truth or a lie. What they gonna say when I die? Welcome back to NC Raw. Sitting in with the amazing Casey Cooper. Thanks for taking the time <laughs> and kind of 
sharing with us your experience and kind of how you got into this role. Uh, is Caleb still over there? Caleb, you over there? I'm I'm here. I, like I was just saying a minute ago, I, I'm gonna have to go home and get in the dictionary and work on my vocabulary. Stop. Step it up whenever I, <laughs> I'll get around Casey. <laughs> I don't know, man. We were just talking in the break. Uh, you were looking a little st- starstruck throughout that interview. <laughs> you thought I was gonna let you off the hook with that, huh? Well, I I knew Casey was going to you know bring a lot to the show. But, um, I love I love that you know being around people that um challenge uh my own understanding and, and it make me it makes me strive to want to do more and but get more involved and 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 learn more yeah i also think that it's like a beautiful thing to like have a conversation like this with a recovery ally mm-hmm. you know in our circles we tend to spend the majority of our time whether it be in the rooms with our recovery community uh, wherever we sp- we tend to spend our time with um, people in recovery, and so we're all passionate about it. But to see somebody uh, in such a professional role and to see su- uh, such a strong recovery ally be as passion as passionate as we are about recovery, it really uh, it's really inspiring. I think uh, I know Richie was talking about the uh, awards that they give out in North Carolina for the Recovery Champion and Recovery Ally Champion. You see a nomination in the I, I in the believe, works? yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I, I'm just going to sit here while you guys continue to talk about me as if I'm not sitting here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we got to give <clears throat> you some love, Casey, because uh, it's it means more than uh, than we can share with you. We made it to the point where you um, were working as a nurse and we kind of hit on that progression um, from how you kind of worked your way up and kind of alluded to being in the right place at the right time to and working hard to achieve these advancements through the hospital. When did you become the CEO of the hospital? I want, I just want to jump in here and say when you when you say being in the right place at the right time, I think that a lot of people have this, you know, um perception of that they would call that lucky, but I, I think Casey is luck is when hard work meets um opportunity. Yeah. And obviously he I don't think he was in the right place at the right time. He he put in a lot of work, a lot of hours and um sweat and tears and uh, to get to where he's at, so yeah, I couldn't agree more. He said something along those lines. I, I forgot mm. what exactly it was earlier, yeah. that kind of. Yeah, so I, um, yeah, thank, I mean, thanks, Caleb. I, I'm, I'm with you. I think luck favors the well-prepared uh, to some degree. But I also, I don't know, I, I, I tell people, that, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard that analogy or talked about, you know, the way geese fly in formation, mm-hmm. you know, you know, the story Absolutely. about geese and how eventually the lead goose becomes tired and they fall to the back and they draft. Mm-hmm. And then another goose takes the lead goose position. Right. Mm-hmm. I just tell people, you know, that we needed another lead goose. Right. And yeah. I was I was next. And so I just I did my part. Okay. You know? And uh, eventually, you know, I'm going to tire and fatigue and I'm going to fall back and I'm going to draft for a while. Sure. You know, and uh, I think the idea is to make sure um that the rest of the V, right, the rest in the flock are healthy and strong. It stays in formation. That, that's what it's about, yeah. Awesome. So when you took over the mm-hmm. hospital um, without, like, 
where where were where were we as far as when did this epidemic hit our community? Oh, with addiction. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, I, I'm really not sure. Uh, I just know that. Um, uh, just just speaking from personal experience and observation, and I, I really don't know. I don't know that I've ever seen any data that showed exactly where this this upper trend started. But as I mentioned earlier, in the late '90s, all we talked about was diabetes. That's it. And then for some reason in 2000, it felt like 2001, 2002, we started talking about chronic pain. And we started talking about, you know, the increased number of patients who were taking opiates. Um, And then it seems like in, you know, the 2003-ish, 2004, we started talking about meth. And, you know, we were just seeing these things uh, escalate. But I really believe um, that unfortunately sometimes – Sometimes when you do the right thing, bad things happen. And, um, and don't get me wrong, it was still the right thing, but I think when the entire country started clamping down on opiates, um, what happened was we took, a, we took a lot of supply out of the communities, mm-hmm. right? As, as hospitals stopped prescribing, we reduced supply, and so what happened is that created an opportunity. It created demand for other things, more illicit drugs. And, I, and really, I, I believe that's what's happened. And so we saw more meth and we see more heroin and all these things, uh, all of these uh, really dangerous illicit drugs that came in as we tried to clamp down on um, the prescribed opiates. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure, uh, you know, when, it, when the epidemic really started. It's hard to know. Um, I just, uh, you know, when we look at the data and we see the uh, substance abuse prevalence rates, we see the the growth rate over the last, you know, eight or nine years probably. The growth rate each year is slightly higher than depression and diabetes, and now it just dwarfs the other two. Wow. Was there a precursor or a harbinger to, you know, to what where we are now, uh, the stepping back and looking back on things? Like, is there is there one, you know, significant event or that you've seen that this, that this was you know, what it was going to come to as far as that goes, um, a spike in arrest? I mean, is there something that you've seen that we could have prepared for better as uh, from a uh, health perspective, health standpoint? You know, I'm not sure that we could have, um, to be honest with you. I, you know, I, I really believe in this in this saying, you know, that if we'd have known better, we'd have done better, right? And I, I really believe that we have, to, we have to have grace for ourselves, and we have to say that, you know. Um, we made mistakes, and, but if we'd known better, we'd done better. And I think that, um, I think that when, when this entire country started increasing the utilization of uh, anxiolytics or anti-anxiety medication, and when we increased the use of uh, opiates for pain management, I think we were genuinely doing what we thought was appropriate. I think we really were. Um, but we were creating these uh, addiction cycles, um, and we were creating these um, downstream complications that, that we had no idea okay. uh, how significant they would be. The other thing I'll say is that um, I really uh, I, I don't think that we fully understand uh, the importance of um, the importance of protecting. For example, if we go upstream, and bear with me because I tend to go really upstream on this, this cycle. Um, but there's some pretty good evidence uh, uh, to demonstrate that stress, the adverse effects of stress physiology actually start when moms are gestating a fetus. 
So if moms are stressed, she is just her paras- I mean, her sympathetic nervous system is just revving. Her body's flooded with stress hormone, and the fetus is being affected by this. In addition to that, when moms are not safe, um, they tend to uh, either not have access to or they neglect their nutrition um, while they're carrying babies. And so what happens is we have babies that are uh, either underdeveloped as a result of poor nutrition or we have babies that are adversely affected by being overdosed on stress hormone while they're in utero. And we're starting to see uh, the evidence is becoming more and more clear about the connection um, to these kids. So these these babies are born. They're born into stressful environments. Um, they they sometimes they don't have the natural ability to regulate their sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. So they don't have the ability to calm themselves when they need to. Um, we see that they have underdeveloped organs. Uh, maybe their brains, uh, don't, they don't develop cognitively the way they need to because they're not getting the stimulus that they need in the, in the nutrition. And so at very, very young ages and even, even uh, in utero, this cycle actually begins. And this cycle eventually leads to uh, chronic diseases or at a minimum, it sometimes leads to maladaptive coping mechanisms. And, you know, Caleb, you and Caitlin, I talked about this a little bit in my office several weeks ago. Um, you know, when we don't have the ability to regulate uh, our stress response, we tend to do things to mitigate it. Sure. Right? Um, for me, you know, it is a giant bucket of popcorn, right? And I just, I just fill myself with, with, mm-hmm. carp- uh, with carbohydrates, and I overindulge on it, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, either that or, you know, chocolate or potato chips. Good gosh, you know, I, you know, and I just overindulge in this, but it's comfort seeking measures. Sure. Right. And it's comfort seeking, just like the person uh, who's drinking alcohol, just like the person who's smoking weed or ultimately that person who's taking a pill. And then eventually they're sticking a needle in a vein. It is their their coping mechanisms um, to deal with this inability to regulate our stress response, you know, and um so um, so I, I, I want to kind of come all the way full circle to what we started with, Caleb. I, I don't know that we – I don't know that there's any way that we could have predicted this. I really believe that we know better, so we should do better. Um, we understand it better. Um, and there are just things that we didn't, we didn't realize. We just didn't make those connections 20 years ago, I don't think. That's fascinating data to have to look at it from that perspective. So from like a a level of care point of view, like are you do you guys target providing care for like pregnant women? And is that something that's like looked at now currently because of this data that you speak of? So it is. um, But I will tell you that one of the challenges that we have is that the majority of healthcare resources are being consumed by people who are already sick, mm-hmm. right? That's where all the consumption is. And if we really believe in these models and if we're really committed to improving the health of populations and we're willing to invest in the next seven generations, then we would, we would literally shift resources. And, and I'll tell you that we, uh, there are things that we do in the tribe that are, that are admirable and better than most communities. Um, for example, you know, the things that we do with our prenatal clinic and having embedded pediatricians and we have embedded master's level therapists in, um, with our pediatric teams. And, um, there are, you know, there are a number of things that we do, including the nurse family, uh, partner program, which is an amazing, uh, evidence-based program 
that partners up nurses as mentors with new moms uh, to help them um, uh, kind of focus on uh, staying healthy and stress reduction and good nutrition. So there's a lot of things that we're doing, but it's not enough. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that we're doing um, is we're trying to create this conversation throughout the entire health system to be the, the, the term that we're using now is to be more trauma informed, mm-hmm. to have an organization that uh, is more trauma informed. And so what does that look like? Um, so we, we have like massive training. We, it, it affects our policies. It affects the way we interact with patients. It affects the, um, uh, it, uh, it affects the way we spend our resources. But a big part of being trauma informed is to change the conversation from saying to a patient, what's wrong with you? Um, and how did you get this way to a conversation where we say, okay, what happened to you? Let's talk about what happened to you uh, rather than talk about the choices you made that led to this. And so that helps us to get to a different place. It helps us to get to a place of having influence, being a partner who, again, walks alongside with, with patients or customer owners um, from a place of, of empathy and understanding. Um, so, uh, so there are some things that we're doing you know, from prenatal care, uh, you know, to nurse family partner, to the embedded BHCs in pediatrics, to this organization-wide focus to be more trauma-informed and to focus more on adverse childhood experiences sure. and the effects. I see you lean in like you had some. I, I think, you know, a, a big a, a heated topic right now is the crisis stabilization unit. Mm-hmm. And um, just can you touch on why it was tabled in council and mm-hmm. what do you think about, I mean, how, how significant would that be as, as to helping the addiction epidemic on the reservation? And also maybe we could just touch on, because I'm not, many of our listeners might not even know about the crisis sure. stabilization unit. So if it's, is it something new? Or uh, something yeah. Or trying? Yeah. Okay. So, and, so let me and what's available now if right. that's not on the table. Right. I think that I, I think you do have to talk about it in the context of the entire continuum of care, mm-hmm. which is absolutely amazing. I mean, it is it is incredible what the Eastern Band has committed to uh, recovery services. So um, three or four years ago, um, the Tribal Council challenged us and they said to us, you know, um, bring us solutions Bring us solutions, and we will bring the resources to bear in this, and, um, and bring us the best solutions. So our behavioral health team, uh, led primarily by Doug Trantham at the time, partnered with community organizations, and they partnered with the local Healing and Wellness Coalition, and we partnered with some, um, some nationally known consultants, did some research, and said, okay, if we're really serious about this, we don't build a service. We don't build a program. We build an entire continuum of programs. Um, And we called it the recovery community continuum because the research indicated that you have to have an entire community of services because people need different things at different times, right? Different points along their journey. That's right. Different points along their journey. That's, I I couldn't put it any better. And so, so really here's, here's what's uh, to be brief. Here's what some of the elements were. We said, okay, first of all, we need to strengthen our our resources for people that are in acute crisis. So we have to strengthen our policies in the emergency room. We have to build safe rooms in the emergency room where people can't hurt themselves while they're there. And 
we have to strengthen our policies around um, detox. And uh, some patients, particularly with alcohol withdrawal, need to be detoxed on inpatient. But we need to strengthen our ability to help detox people that are not on alcohol, like heroin and others, who can safely be detoxed as an outpatient. And then once we get them out of that phase, then we need somewhere for them to go while they're in contemplation, while they're in that place where they're willing uh, to consider treatment. We need somewhere for them to go to leave the community for a while and to get into long-term residential treatment. And then hopefully people will complete that successfully, and then they'll need to be reintegrated into the community, but they need to be transitioned. So after the residential treatment piece, which we call Kana Wotiyi, uh, a place of healing, Kanawotii and Snowbird. Uh, sometimes we call it the Snowbird Treatment Facility. So once they leave there, then eventually we'll have them reintegrate if they want to through a recovery support home. Kind of the old-fashioned term was halfway houses. Mm-hmm. So we're building a recovery support home for males and a, re- a recovery support home for females uh, that will accommodate females with children. And then... Uh, for those people who are able to reintegrate into the community or, or move back to the recovery support, they need intensive outpatient services and they need a recovery center, a place where they can just drop in just kind of informally and be in an environment that supports their sobriety. And so we went to tribal council and we said we need all of these pieces. We need an entire community of recovery support services. And we started building it. And the last piece Uh, that we need financial support from tribal council on is what we're calling the crisis stabilization unit. So if you can imagine this, if if you can just try to envision there's this entire puzzle, all the pieces are completely stuck together, and the puzzle is almost complete except for one piece right in the middle that's missing. And that one piece is a crisis stabilization unit, a place where we can temporarily take people's freedom away from them, put them on a lock-secured unit, and keep them safe while we move them from pre-contemplation into contemplation. And, and we need some alternative to jail. We need an alternative to incarceration where people can get treatment and get therapy. We can keep them safe, give them the medications that they need, have them under medical supervision, and then graduate them to Kanawotii, to residential treatment. A place where when Caleb's mom reaches out to you, Right. And says, I don't know what to do. Casey right. Cooper can say, hey, I have a, a crisis stabilization unit. Right. I got a bed for him. Right. That's right. Our doors are open. Right. He owns it. Great point. The, uh, you know, the other thing that I'll say is that um, a, a lot of people know this, but the mental health system in North Carolina is, is just horribly broken. And so even, even patients who, who have an involuntary commitment taken out on them, um, and they are temporarily taken into custody under a custody order. They are in custody and incarcerated in emergency rooms mm-hmm. because there are no available beds in the yeah. state. So patients literally are incarcerated in ER rooms for weeks, sometimes months at a time. The um, um, Murphy Medical Center, I think they have a record. They had um, uh, a patient on an IVC in their ER for more than 130 days. Right. It's just it's just horrible. And these patients need love. They need compassion. They need a bed. They need a tray of food to eat and they need medications and they need a psychiatrist and a a behavioral health therapist. They need services. Mm -hmm. They don't need to be in emergency rooms and they don't need to be incarcerated. And that doesn't exist. Uh, You know, uh, 
uh, in a way that is sufficient in the state of North Carolina. And so what the tribe challenged us with is the, the tribe said to us, forget prior art. Forget what's out there. Let's do what's right without respect to prior art. So um, if we need to do this to uh, unplug ourselves from the state system to be more self-sufficient, then let's do it. And I really believe, and to get to Caleb's question, I really believe that the crisis stabilization unit is still a priority for the tribe. The tribe's going to fund it. Um, the, the tribe is having to stop and really evaluate uh, its current financial position and make strategic uh, decisions about its uh, large capital investments. And as soon as they kind of work through that and get some certainty, I'm really confident that, they, that we're going to proceed um, with this project. Um, we, um, we have finished, the, the tribe has already given us um, or um, has funded the design of the crisis stabilization unit to the tune of $1.7 million. Oh, okay. And so the, um, the, the ask now for the construction from the tribe is about $31.5 million. Um, so the, the tribe has demonstrated that it will absolutely use its financial resources to invest and improve in the health of its people. And I'm confident that it'll happen. It's just uh, we're just going to have to take some time to get some more certainty around the financing. Yeah, absolutely. I was actually mm. you spoke of like that continuum of care. Mm. All the other pieces of the puzzle are in place. Mm. So correct me if I'm wrong. What I'm hearing you say is that as long as the client's not in immediate crisis, if they're seeking detox or if they're seeking inpatient treatment, wherever they are in their uh, along their journey, you have the pieces to the puzzle in, in place for them to start on that continuum and walk that path of recovery? Well, there are some pieces that are in place, and there are some pieces that have financial support that are being built. Um, and then there are pieces that um, are planned but don't necessarily have the financial support behind them. So Kanawotee, the 20-bed uh, residential treatment facility, it's up and running. Um, we've had, uh, I think we've had two graduation ceremonies now. So I think that we're up to about four residents that have already graduated out of that program. That's beautiful. And um, I think uh, the last data I heard was that the female cottage was full at 10 um, and that the male cottage was at 7 and that there were three on the waiting list. Um, I think, if I remember right, uh, the graduation last week was primarily females, and we we had females already in line to occupy the beds that they were vacating upon graduation. So it is it's up and running. The recovery center is up and running and going really well. Um, the uh, intensive outpatient, all those programs, uh, the Suboxone service is is very mature and has been running for a long time. Um, our detox processes. Um, one of the challenges, though, absent the crisis stabilization unit, is that we are still admitting patients onto our medical uh, inpatient unit, and it's not the best fit uh, for patients that are in crisis. Um, it's not as safe as it needs to be. Um, it's not safe for patients, and it's not safe for staff. Um, so that's the that's the piece that we're working on. The two halfway houses or the two re- recovery support homes, um, they are funded. Um, we uh, we were going to build the male uh, halfway house in the Whittier community and then eventually hit so many regulatory barriers that that project is no longer feasible. So now we're looking for a site on tribal land. The female recovery support home, uh, we have a site. Um, we have a budget. Um, we had a groundbreaking ceremony scheduled for 
um, uh, a week or two ago, and unfortunately it got snowed out of all things. Oh, gosh. Um, but we're hoping to um, um, kick that uh, construction project off uh, either uh, this summer or late summer. So, so all these pieces are coming together. They really are. And we're just so blessed that, to live in a community where, um, where the, a population uh, of folks who typically don't have voice uh, in the allocation of, of financial resources have tremendous voice in a tribal community. I think the community is blessed to have somebody so involved in the process. It's a beautiful thing. What is the, what's the detox process like and like the transition from detox to snowbird? And then, like, are there – do you have relationships with any other outpatient providers? Like, say there wasn't any beds available at Snowbird, but somebody completes detox. What would the process look like? Yeah. So we um, – so I can't really speak to the details of detox. I, You know, I'm, I'm actually thinking that some um, – some guests that you might want in the future uh, on this program would be uh, Frida Saylor, who is amazing. She is absolutely phenomenal and would be uh, um, just a real asset to the program and be real informative. She could talk a little bit more about the specifics of detox, but it's different and it depends on the, the substance of choice. You know, uh, obviously, uh, people who are detoxing from alcohol have a much higher uh, risk of death during mm-hmm. that process. And so typically we're going to admit them, we're going to monitor their vital signs, and we're going to watch them really closely for delirium tremors and other things that can actually lead to death. Now, patients who are uh, not detoxing from alcohol that are, you know, typically heroin or opiates or other things, um, we um, what we will do We'll typically see them in the emergency room. We'll prescribe them some medications to help them with all the symptoms because mm-hmm. you're really sick and you feel horrible. Um, I understand. And uh, uh, and so we give medication to help with the symptoms, and we try to get them in uh, immediately uh, to the recovery center so that they can begin the uh, initial assessment and get started with intensive outpatient and that kind of thing and, and you know, monitor them, detox those patients uh, on an outpatient basis. What role does the peer support specialist play in that recovery center? So is that a question for me or for... That's a question uh, for anybody in this room. Okay. So, I, I, you know, I, I will take a stab at it. And again, we need Frida and the, and the technical folks okay. who are involved in those programs. But um, we have peer support in the recovery center. Um, and we also have peer support uh, who um, who do rounds in the emergency room. So if we have patients who are staying overnight in the emergency room, we have peer support specialists who come by and they and they round on them and they check in and we try to provide them um, uh, some services while they're there and waiting on a bed. Um, but anyway, it, I think it would be awesome, and I, I wouldn't want to do a disservice to to Frida and the staff by. Mm-hmm. Um, oversimplifying what they do. So based off of your experience, what recovery models or what recovery approaches are you seeing most successful on the reservation? So um, to be honest with you, I don't, I don't know that I can say empirically uh, what's the most successful uh, at this time. I'll tell you that the approach that we're, that we have taken in building our programs is primarily two things. Uh, number one, that the programs are evidence-based, you know, using a standardized curriculum. Um, and number two, uh, ensuring that the programs are culturally congruent. 
um, we believe that um, uh, we we believe first of all, you know, we don't we don't want to be uh, experimenting with people's lives. If there is good evidence out there, we're going to follow it. You know, we're not going to stick our head in the sand. And uh, and we're not going to be too intellectually lazy to find out, you know, if where the evidence is. Um, so we're going to follow that. But I really believe that being evidence based just means that it has the ability to do good. It's just it's just efficacious. And in order for it to be effective, then it needs to be it, it needs to resonate with clients. And and we think the best way to resonate and, and have them feel feel that it's their own and to get buy-in and to be influential with them is to also ensure that it is culturally congruent. So we really try to utilize um, uh, Cherokee culture as much as we can into the programs. You guys collect data on people seeking recovery and kind of... We do. Uh, We do collect data. Um, uh, That would be a really good thing for a future show to talk a little bit more about that. whole episode. Yeah. All right, cool. Caleb keeps leaning into the microphone like he has a question. <laughs> I, I pause for a second. I, I, I think I put him to sleep. I think he nodded <laughs> off. His, his, uh... <laughs> oh, man. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about the, what the community can do for the hospital. Um, like what, in what ways can the community support your recovery efforts? What, 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 do you, what would you like to see maybe changed or... Uh, worked on from the from a community perspective to support all of these changes that you guys are doing so uh, so just off the top of my head three things come to mind okay um, first of all um, I think it, I think the community um, the community could be a real strategic partner in this fight um, against addiction disorders and this pursuit of sobriety, community-wide sobriety, if the community would be more engaged at building grassroots initiatives, because the there to some degree, um, I mean we're we're using the professional system to build this whole recovery community continuum, um, but there's an element of basically uh, giving up our, our power, giving up our voice, giving up our, our own resilience, giving up our self-sufficiency to a professional system uh, when we do that. And don't get me wrong, I, it, it's necessary, but I don't think it's enough. I think, um, I think there's a true resiliency and self-sufficiency that comes from grassroots initiatives that are not based on a professional program. That way, we are taking more ownership for our own health, and we're not subordinating ourselves to some authority to take care of us, to, to be in charge of our health. So I think grassroots initiatives are amazingly important, and you know, I'll be the first one to say that, um, you know, I think that um, people struggling with recovery get a lot more benefit from loved ones and friends and family members who are supporting them in their sobriety than they do from professional systems. So, that, so that's the first thing, you know, d- you know, look for grassroots solutions and look for ways to take back power from the professional system, take back some ownership. The second thing I would say is continue to provide advocacy and voice. Um, for this population, for a population who typically doesn't have a lot of voice. And the reason, and and I don't mean that to sound disrespectful or or disparaging in any way, but um, sometimes public policy 
is usually affected by legislators. Legislators are typically driven by votes, mm-hmm. right, by constituency. And, and a lot of times uh, when folks struggle with addiction, they become disenfranchised, and they're not part of constituency. They're not part of voting voice, and so they lose influence. So the second thing I would say is to stay engaged, stay involved, and continue to advocate for public policy and, and that kind of thing and be a voice for a population that is otherwise disenfranchised. So in what ways would you suggest that policy needs to be changed in your specific community? Like in, in what, what opportunities are out there? Right. So in for my them to express vo- their voice, as Caleb pointed out earlier, the number one priority for us right now is the uh, securing the legislation and the funding for the crisis stabilization unit. So, you know, come to our community club meetings. We'll be in Yellow Hill Community Club tomorrow night at six. Come out to those meetings. Um, learn all that you can about the crisis stabilization unit and help us educate the constituency. Because if we can educate the constituency, then we can reduce the risk um, for legislators to make policy decisions. Okay. You know, it's risky for legislators to make policy decisions if they feel like the constituency is, hasn't come along with them yet, mm-hmm. you know. So help us to keep the constituency informed. Here's the third thing that I'll say that the recovery community can do to help. And I, I don't mean to be overly dramatic about this, mm-hmm. right, but I, I'm just going to say it. The thing that I, that I believe that we need the most from the recovery community is we need for the community, we need you in recovery to glow. We need you to glow and we need you to shine, right? We need you to be a constant message of hope um, uh, for others. We need you to be a constant reminder to policymakers that it's the right thing to do to invest in these types of services. Um, We need you um, to be everything that God intended you to be and, and and to bloom and glow and shine um, so that we can continue to communicate the importance of love and compassion and empathy for others. And we can continue to affirm uh, this belief that, if not, you know, it's not the first commandment, but it's at least the second commandment uh, to, to love our brothers like ourselves. And when we pour ourselves into being significant in the lives of others uh, and we see others glow, then it is a powerful feedback loop uh, to reinforce those types of behaviors. So the third most important thing I would say to you is glow. Well, that's what I was going to share. Is, uh, I talked to um, the chairman of our tribal council, Adam Machacha, who is also a recovery ally, and uh, we spoke on the phone. Actually, it was it was really late. It was like 10.30 at night, and we talked for about 30 minutes, and uh, I appreciate him taking my call and everything. And um, But he, he said that, uh, I, actually, I'm going to be on council here soon, and... Um, just talking about um, diet and exercise, and he's going to challenge the rest of the uh, council members to get on a diet and start getting on an exercise plan. Is this a public challenge right here? <laughs> this is. <laughs> okay. And, you know, and that's, that's just our leaders, you know, stepping out of their comfort zones, and so everybody else will follow suit. We, we, we know that's, uh, that's okay. Go on. Make a huge impact. Go on. And also, um, you know, the recovery house that we, uh, we actually wrote down on um, – our big sheet of paper. Our big sheet of paper last night. Vision our vision board. Um, we're actually hoping to uh, partner up with the hospital um, for those coming out of uh, detox and uh, the treatment center to have a have a, a safe place for them to stay. And just like Casey was talking about grassroots, you know, it's about giving back to the community. And 
Uh, we actually have that house already. Um, it's already there. We're going to be vacating. There's some people living in it right now. So um, 60 days. I think we're shooting for 60 days, and we're going to have it up and running. Under That's your awesome. under your organization? Yes, Res Hope. Res Hope. It's beautiful. I got one question for Casey just off the top of my head. Um, Francis Hess. Where? Tell me. You guys reconnect when you came back? You guys still have a relationship? Oh, have you yeah. thanked her for everything she yeah. inspired you to do? So many times, but you know, I am, um, uh, yes. I mean, I, I've thanked her so many times, but to be honest with you, I'm one of maybe a 1,000 or 2,000 people uh, that she's influenced. There's such an abundance of us out there. We're all just Hess kids, you know, we, we really are. I think Caitlin um, is yeah, too. Yeah, as a matter of fact, Caitlin is a Hess kid too. <laughs> um, but yeah, she's just a you know an amazing person. Um, she is she's fully retired now, and um, I think that's unfortunate. I would I would love for my kids to have had the opportunity to to be in her class and to be to be within her love. You know, mm-hmm. she just kind of radiated so much love and acceptance. But yeah, beautiful person, doing well, and. Um, uh, is a good illustration of the difference between success and significance. Um, you know, she's been successful by any standard. You know, she was teacher of the year for Jackson County a number of times. She was teacher of the year for the state. She was, she, one year she won uh, a national award as teacher of the year, but that pales to nothing uh, in, this, uh, in comparison to how significant she was in the individual lives of people. And, you know, it's... Um, uh, it's inspiring, you know, it makes you want to kind of continue on and pour yourself into others. I kind of want to, um, I, I want to ask about the, uh, phases at the treatment center in Snowbird. What, what does that look like, Casey? I will, um, uh, again, I, 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 I'd like to defer to have Frida or one of the, a member of the technical staff to speak to the specifics of the curriculum and the phases. I can tell you that, um, initially, um, we've had graduates that move through all of the levels in about six weeks, um, but uh, we're not tied to the six weeks. If it takes eight, 10, 12, it doesn't matter. Um, we care a lot less about graduation than we do about people getting it and uh, moving through each of those subsequent phases. You got anything else? All right. So, I told Kaylin I was going to do this. I need to liven this party up a little bit. We're going to try a new segment. I'm going to introduce something that we've never done on NC Raw before to kind of add some some flair, some fun, some pop. I'm going to show you a picture. I'm going to show you a picture from your own Facebook page. I want you to tell me a story behind it. I'm going to show you three pictures. From my Facebook page? From your own Facebook page. Okay. Trolling on his Facebook page. (laughs) What what was my name on episode one? Stalker. Yeah, the stalker. (laughs) So I'm going to show you a picture from your own Facebook page. Lay it on me. And I want you to tell me just a brief story. Like, what happened? What was it about? Where did it come from? And we'll post these pictures with Casey's Casey's approval. We'll post these pictures somewhere on NC Raw. Oh, wow. I haven't seen that picture in a long time. So that's that's a picture of a bicycle with a flat tire. And um, uh, on the ride in 2011, uh, I'm not sure what happened. I don't know if we bought bad tires that year or if there was just a 
a larger amount of debris on the road, but there was uh, there was a day when I think we had like 13 flats in a single day. Wow. It was horrible. And um, so that's just a, that's a, another picture of us on the side of the road changing yet another flat. It was not uncommon for us to, uh, to change the flat and, and within a mile beyond that, somebody else would have another flat. It was, it was brutal. Did it have anything to do with the heat? Uh, yeah, I think it did. Um, when we were riding through, I think it was Dayton, Tennessee, um, the, uh, the, the temperature off the asphalt was like 140 degrees or something crazy as it was reflecting off. So that's what and I then, to look forward to. Yeah, is that yeah. the same time of year that they were, that he's doing his? Yeah, yeah. So we, uh, and, and one day in Missouri, um, we had one day that was a 75 mile day. And uh, the majority of the ride was in, like, the 92 to 94-degree heat. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty brutal. Brutal. Yeah. You ready for number two? Lay it on me. All right, here's number two. <laughs> oh, yep. Oh, wow. That's uh, hanging with Paula Dean. So, uh, yeah. So this was, uh, first of all, this was before all the controversy with Paula Dean. Um, this is when she was. Let's, let's uh, make that very clear. Huh? Yeah, yeah. This was before all the the racial controversy and uh it's when she still had um when there was still a franchise a paula Deen restaurant mm-hmm. at the casino and um she did a, a live show there and they donated all the proceeds uh to the mammography unit at the hospital so i got to meet paula Deen and um, she gave us a big giant check for uh actually we should you should do the research see if you can find the check but i I think it was $25,000 uh, was the proceeds from uh, her live event, and we used it to offset the cost of the digital mammography unit at the hospital. Oh. Yeah. So uh, let me tell you an even so, funnier story about Paula Dean. Uh-huh. Does she cook anything? Oh, yeah, yeah, she cooked right on stage. But here's the best story. So there was a lady that's working at the hospital, and I'm not going to mention her name because she'll be horribly embarrassed. But you know me. she's listening. Well, I there's think a that good she, chance. I think there's a good chance that she'll hear this. But anyway, there's a lady at the hospital, and um, so she went into the bathroom, and um, she came out of the stall and walked to the sink to wash her hands. And she looked up in the mirror, and the stall door opened beside her, and Paula Dean stepped out of the stall. And so Paula Dean walks up behind her, and she says, Honey, then it is a powerful feedback loop uh, to reinforce those types of behaviors. So the third most important thing I would say to you is glow. That's what I was going to share. Is uh, I talked to um, the chairman of our tribal council, Adam Wachacha, who is also a recovery ally, and uh, we spoke on the phone. Actually, it was it was really late. It was like ten thirty at night. We talked for about thirty minutes, and uh, I appreciate him taking my call and everything. And um, but he, he said that uh, I actually I'm going to be on council here soon, and um, just talking about um, diet and exercise. And he's going to challenge the rest of the uh, council members to get on a diet and start getting on an exercise plan. Is this a public challenge right here? This is. <laughs> okay. And, you know, and that's, that's just our leaders, you know, stepping out of their comfort zones. And so everybody else will follow suit. We, we, we know that's uh, it's okay. Go going on. to make a huge impact. Go on. And also, um, you know, the recovery house that we uh, we actually wrote down on um, our big sheet of paper, our big sheet of paper last night. Vision our vision board. Um, we're actually hoping to uh, partner up with the hospital um, for those coming out of uh, detox and uh, the treatment center 
to have a have a, a safe place for them to stay and just like Casey was talking about grassroots you know it's about giving back to the community and uh, we actually have that house already um it's already there we're going to be vacating there's some people living in it right now so um 60 days i think we're shooting for 60 days and we're going to have it up and running under That's your awesome. under your organization yes res hope res hope it's beautiful i got one question for casey just off the top of my head um francis hess where tell me you guys reconnect when you came back you guys still have a relationship oh, have you yeah. thanked her for everything she yeah. inspired you to do so many times but yeah I am, um, uh, yes, I mean, I, I've thanked her so many times, but to be honest with you, I'm one of maybe a 1,000 or 2,000 people uh, that she's influenced. There's such an abundance of us out there. We're all just Hess kids, you know, we, we really are. Um, I think Caitlin is, yeah, too. Yeah, as a matter of fact, Caitlin is a Hess kid, too. <laughs> um, but, yeah, she's just, uh, you know, an amazing person. Um, she is, she's fully retired now, and... Um, I think that's unfortunate. I would I would love for my kids to have had the opportunity to to be in her class and to be to be within her love. You know, she just kind of radiated so much love and acceptance. But yeah, beautiful person, doing well, and um, uh, is a good illustration of the difference between success and significance. Um, you know, she's been successful by any standard. You know, she was teacher of the year for Jackson County a number of times. She was teacher of the year for the state. She was, she had one year she won uh, a national award as teacher of the year, but that pales to nothing uh, in, this, uh, in comparison to how significant she was in the individual lives of people. And, you know, it's, um, uh, it's inspiring, you know, it makes you want to kind of continue on and pour yourself into others. I kind of want to. Um, I want to ask about the uh, phases at the treatment center in Snowbird. What what does that look like, Casey? I will. Um, uh, again, I I I'd like to defer to have Frida or one of the, a member of the technical staff to speak to the specifics of the curriculum and the phases. I can tell you that um, initially, um, we've had graduates that move through all of the levels in about six weeks, um, but uh, we're not tied to the six weeks. If it takes 8, 10, 12, it doesn't matter. Um, we care a lot less about graduation than we do about people getting it and um, moving through each of those subsequent phases. All right. So I told Caitlin I was going to do this. I need to liven this party up a little bit. We're going to try a new segment. I might introduce something that we've never done on NC Raw before to kind of Add some some flair, some fun, some pop. I'm going to show you a picture. I'm going to show you a picture from your own Facebook page. I want you to tell me a story behind it. I'm going to show you three pictures. Oh, from my Facebook from page? From your own Facebook page. Okay. Troll on his Facebook Trolling. page. Yeah. <laughs> what, what was my name on episode one? Stalker. Yeah, the yeah. stalker. <laughs> so I'm going to show you a picture from your own Facebook page. Lay it on me. And I want you to tell me just a brief story. Like what happened? What was it about? Where did it come from? And we'll post these pictures with Casey's <laughs> with Casey's approval. We'll post these pictures somewhere on NC Raw. Oh wow, I haven't seen that picture in a long time. So that's a that's a picture of a bicycle with a flat tire, and um, 
uh, on the ride in 2011, uh, I'm not sure what happened. I don't know if we bought bad tires that year or if there was just a, a larger amount of debris on the road, but there was, uh, there was a day when I think we had like 13 flats in a single day. Wow. It was horrible. And um, so that's just a, that's a, another picture of us on the side of the road changing yet another flat. It was not uncommon for us to, uh, to change the flat and and within a mile beyond that somebody else would have another flat it was it was brutal did it have anything to do with the heat uh yeah i think it did um when we were riding through i think it was dayton tennessee um the uh the the temperature off the asphalt was like 140 degrees or something crazy as it was reflecting off so that's what i get to look forward to yeah is that the same time of year that they were that he's doing his yeah yeah so we uh and in one day in missouri um we had one day that was a 75 mile day and uh, the majority of the ride was in like the 92 to 94 degree heat Um, so yeah it's pretty brutal brutal you ready for number two lay it on me all right here's number two (laughs) <laughs> oh yep oh, wow. that's uh <laughs> hanging with paula dean so uh yeah so this was uh first of all this was before all the controversy with paula dean um this is when she was let's, let's uh, make that very clear right? yeah yeah this was before all the the racial controversy and uh it's when she still had um when there was still a franchise a paula dean restaurant mm-hmm. at the casino and um, she did a, a live show there, and they donated all the proceeds uh, to the mammography unit at the hospital. So I got to meet Paula Dean, and um, she gave us a big giant check for. Uh, actually, we should you should do the research see if you can find the check, but I think it was twenty five thousand uh, dollars was the proceeds from uh, her live event, and we used it to offset the cost of the digital mammography unit at the hospital. Oh, yeah. So uh, let me tell you an even so, funnier story about Paula Dean. Uh huh. Does she cook anything? Oh yeah, yeah. She cooked right on stage. But here's the best story. So there was a lady that's working at the hospital, and I'm not going to mention her name because she'll be horribly embarrassed. But by you know this. she's listening. Well, I there's think a that good she. Chance. I think there's a good chance that she'll hear this. But anyway, there's a lady at the hospital, and um, so she went into the bathroom, and um, she came out of the stall and walked to the sink to wash her hands. And she looked up in the mirror, and the stall door opened beside her, and Paula Dean stepped out of the stall. And so Paula Dean walks up behind her, and she says, Honey, you're all tucked in back here. Let me help you out. And this friend of mine from the hospital had tucked her skirt in the back of her pantyhose, and Paula <laughs> Dean pulled her skirt out for her. So I have a really dear friend at the hospital whose Paula Dean story is she pulled her skirt out of the back of her hose. <laughs> Stories like that are the reason why we started doing this segment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The reason why we started doing this segment. Yeah. Last picture before we wrap it up. I know okay. you're, you're here late on a Monday night, so last picture. Okay. Ready? Oh, man. That's my <laughs> wedding picture. Uh-huh. And my wife is absolutely stunning. Oh, my God. You should have said, we, we were absolutely the best-looking couple ever at my wedding. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm telling you, I mean, I, you know, everybody else's wedding is going to be okay, but it's going to be a distant runner-up because we were amazing. <laughs> okay, tell me about this wedding. 24 years ago? 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow, you're good. <laughs> How'd you know? Oh, research, wow. man. Man, you are good. Uh, I won't have a superstar in here without doing a little bit of so research. So I, I need you to do me a favor. <laughs> uh-huh. I need you to send me a text like next year before my 25th anniversary and remind me. <laughs> you got it. Man. You got it. Because if I blow it, man, I'm in big trouble. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I met my wife um, my senior year in nursing school. I was doing my community mental health rotation in um, Lincoln County at the health department. And I was assigned to this little family. And uh, there was a little baby in this family, and her name was Harley. And Harley had um, this really rare condition um, that affected her, her limbs. It's called arthrogryposis. But anyway, so I was, in this, uh, I was in this home, and Harley and her mother um, and her dad lived in a, uh, in a small little trailer park in Krause, North Carolina. And um, we became really good friends with this family. She just had the most resilient mom ever. I'm talking about just a hardworking, get-it-done, survivor kind of mom. And my, my wife... Uh, who I had never met at the time at, at this time was working for Lincoln Gaston County uh, Mental Health and was doing early childhood intervention and home based education and the therapist that was taking care of this little girl and the mom concocted this plan to have my wife Jill and me there at the same time okay. so that we would see each other and um, and I, of course I fell in love with her immediately love at first sight yeah. But, um, I, you know, I tell people that uh, really what did it was I was traveling and dancing at the time, and I was a really good hoop dancer. And, um, and I looked really good when I hoop danced. Okay. I used to have great <laughs> you know, legs. You know I'm going to expect to see you hoop yeah. dancing out there so, at the recovery rally in Cherokee so, um, in September. <laughs> so they were, I, was, I was doing shows at all the schools and stuff in Lincoln County. This is, this is really for real, Kevin. You've got to believe me on this. And... Um, and so when they did the, they did this article about me in the local paper, and they posted my name and my number and my address so that people could contact me to come do these programs, these educational programs. And so uh, my wife saw it, or Jill, who eventually became my wife, she uh, she saw the the newspaper article. I think they actually put me on the front page, which was kind of cool. Um, anyway, so she called me up. You know, we made small talk for a minute, and then she came to one of my shows, and. She saw me hoop dance. Yeah. It was over. <laughs> you know, it, it almost wasn't fair to her. Oh, man. Right? I, love I mean, it. I had, at that time, I had braids down to my waist, um, and I was about 30 pounds lighter. And um, yeah, it was, uh, it was unfortunate. It wasn't even really fair for her. She didn't really have a choice. She didn't right? stand a chance. It was an irresistible force. <laughs> right? So anyway, we, uh, we got married uh, some months later and been together ever since. She's you amazing. St- you still have those moves today? No, no, I, no, I, I tell you, I, it's a success if I can bend over time on shoes anymore. <laughs> no, I consider that a success. But I'm with anyway. you on that. So yeah. do we have your permission to post those three pictures to our Facebook page yeah. to tell our listeners to hear the backside story? Sure. On our show? Yeah. yeah. Casey, thanks for joining us, man. Appreciate you, Casey. I, I, I'm just sitting here like... He's starstruck all over <laughs> again. <laughs> Well, I, I enjoyed doing it, and uh, I appreciate you inviting me and, um, and giving me an opportunity to kind of share some things from the heart. Um, you know, that's important, just to be heard, right? Absolutely. It's important. And, um, you know, anything I can do to, to help people glow, um, 
it's intrinsically motivating to me. So it was it was really a blessing to me to be here. So thank you. Yeah, you're doing it, man. Thanks for listening to NC Raw Recovery Always. The NC Raw family would like to thank today's musical contributors, Rival, whose work can be found on Facebook, SoundCloud, and YouTube by searching Rival 727, and Notes, whose work is on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash Alvin Hooks. All of our NC Raw content is available by visiting our website at www.ncraw.life. Please subscribe to our website to receive exclusive content offers sent directly to your inbox. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at WNC Raw. Thanks for tuning in.